Hey everybody, it's Matt and Andy. Hi guys. Our sponsor again is the wonderful Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Hollywood, California. When your crew, uh, I, I read crew wrong. You when it. your crew, point is guys, could you believe that I read that wrong or not? It's kind of Nordic. <laughs> when your crew beams down to our quadrant for shore leave, be sure to check out Ripley's Hollywood. Ripley's offers an all-age experience featuring a collection of art and weirdness from all over Sector 001. That's Earth. That's Earth. It sure is, buddy. Ripley's nice. collection spans from the time before we kept star dates till now. STTNC listeners get buy one, get one free on adult admission to the auditorium for the month of July. Mention Admiral's Myra's <laughs> mention Admiral Myra's favorite Trek era costume to get the deal. So the deal has changed. Oh. It is no longer Andy's theory about Wesley being a sociopath. I don't like this change at all. This current deal is mentioning Admiral Myra's favorite Trek era costume to get the deal. All you have to do is tell them the best costume on Star Trek was from the Wrath of Khan. And Ripley's will give you buy one, get one free. Which one again? It's The Wrath of Khan. It's the movie era. It's the original series movie, movie era uniforms. From Star Trek Two through Star Trek Six, you see a glimpse of it in Star Trek Generations. Uh-huh. It's the best uniform there ever was, and it's it's the admirals, or just any of them. Any of them, I think okay. they're all stellar. I mean, my specific favorite is Admiral Kirk's uniform because it's got a little bit of gold trim on it that the others don't have. <laughs> nice, but the answer is Wrath of Khan era Star Trek crew uniforms. Those are the best uniforms. Mention it. Get buy one get one free. At Ripley's Hollywood. Now, am I confusing it to ask you about? Did wasn't there a Picard one that was a gray jacket that you were like a gray canvas something? A gray suede jacket. That's the best Picard era. Oh, uniform. I see. But okay. the best uniform of all time. Gray bar Picard. none. And what, what's that one called? The gray what suede? His his suede jacket over a gray sweater. Oh, I see. Just is that a casual sweater? That's his fucking. That's his his casual day, casual Friday uniform. Andy, the point is, if anyone wants to get this, buy one get one free. They have to go in and mention Matt Myers' favorite Star Trek era costume, which is the Star Trek Two. Yes, the uniform. Star Trek Two maroon or red tunic. Gotcha. I mean, you know, guys, Ripley's will give you something to discover. Believe it. <laughs> Ripley's is really getting it. Uh, it's money's worth in airtime, if not quality. That's because <laughs> we love them so much. Thank you, Ripley's. Bye. Podcast, The Final Frontier. These are the conversations of the friendship Matt Myra and Andrew Secunda. Their continuing mission. To seek out old adventures with contrived civilizations. To boldly watch episodes that one of them has watched before. Andy, we're back. Star Trek The Next Conversation is here. I'm Matt. I'm Andy. 
We have returned from a, a week-long hiatus. Mm-hmm. Was it only a week? It was only a week. It seems like it's really been a long time. It did feel like a long time. Yeah. Because maybe we recorded earlier in the week or something. But uh, happy to be back. Here's the plan, everyone. Today we're discussing the documentary written and directed by William Shatner called Chaos, Chaos on, the Bridge, on the Bridge, which is a phenomenal documentary. It's available on Netflix. So if you haven't watched it yet, I would recommend stopping this podcast, heading over to Netflix, watching it. It's only an hour long, but it's packed with information. It's very entertaining. It is. It is indeed. Uh, as soon as we're done with this episode of the podcast, we're going to be heading to season two. We heard we heard everyone's pleas, and uh, we're going to do Chaos on the Bridge. We're going to jump right into season two of Star Trek The Next Generation. The writer's strike crippled season. The whole season? How far in? They started, uh, I believe they started five months late. Right. And but still they, cranked out 26 episodes? What does that tell you? It tells me there was a lot of, there were a lot of disgruntled people in that writer's room. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wonder what the, yeah, it did mention in the things that I'd read the, that the beginning of the season were still writer's strike issues. Mm-hmm. But I wonder at what point they kind of righted the ship. It's definitely got to hobble them in terms of prepping for future episodes absolutely um and we're gonna we're gonna dive into all of it with this wonderful documentary chaos on the bridge uh check it out if you haven't but uh, in the meantime before we hop on board the starship chaos we are going to should have prepped it in some way i didn't know the admiral's know. club was coming in fact i thought we we're opening hails but it is the admiral's club if you'd like to be in the Admirals Club, all you have to do is leave a five-star review on iTunes. If you're in a country outside of the United States, you got to email it to us because we can't see it. It's at sttncpod at gmail.com. That's our email. Send us a, a little clip or a picture of your... Uh, really, if you just tell us you did it. I'm not, what am I going to go? Check it. Uh, but, but it's nice to see it, uh, that you sent us, a, uh, that you rated us a five-star review, and um, you're in the Admirals Club. That's all it takes. Whether we read it or not, you're in the Admirals Club, just to be clear. And here are some of the Admirals Club um, heroes that, uh, that we experienced since our last podcast. Um, this comes from Xtian420. Um, he says, it's all about the bone, referring to Riker's uh, sax, correct? <laughs> trombone. It's a trombone. Trombone. Sorry. It's the bone. Oh, the trombone. So. I you were like, you raise your eyebrow, to which I thought you were going to say, it's about Riker's dick. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is, which, that is yes, the subtext. Which, yes, I guess it is. Sure. It's the subtext of all Star yes. Trek. Anyway, uh, he says, Matt and Sandy are incredible. Sandy. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> incredible, fun, and smart hosts. It's great to have some hilarious hands to hold, hold as we trudge through these first seasons. Couldn't slash wouldn't have done it without you. Beam me up. Oh, Very nice. Thanks, guys. Five stars. One thanks, of the trust. One of the best Star Trek podcasts from Charlie Bygred. Um, is there a pun there that I'm missing? As I missed with the trombone. <laughs> yeah. If you're a fan of Star Trek, uh, this podcast is a lot of fun. Don't be fooled by their skepticism. Matt and Andy love Star Trek. If you do too, you'll love this podcast. Yeah. Um, Trapper Sean MD, who's, <laughs> Great a, name. who's a frequent Great uh, name. tweeter at us. Always say it. Um, tweety. Uh, says, a descent into the madness of Secunda. 
Uh, Star Trek TNC has reignited my love and passion for the flagship of the Star Trek series. Uh, ooh, that's a controversial statement. Uh, the witty repartee. You got something to say there, Matt? I think it is. <laughs> oh, I agree. Yeah. Uh, the witty repartee from Matt and Andy have helped to get through the slog of the first season while listening to Andy try not to go insane from the sheer awfulness of many of the episodes <laughs> has helped my interest from week to week. Um, one of the best Matt podcasts out there. Oh, wow. High um, praise. MD, MDK421. All laid back and off the cuff. Not at all like the other mo- podcast Matt is involved with. <laughs> Who needs a tight ship other than Locutus of Borg or Kevin or Scott or Chris? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Beth Harrington from Canada uh-huh. writes us, uh, Loving the podcast. I look forward to a new episode every week. Uh, please never have any of your sound cues ready. Hearing you guys. So far after a great start. Vamp. Uh, with varying degrees of success is always a delight. Matt and Andy together is podcast gold. Keep up the great work. Um, terrific from Grundle Trundle. Charming, joyful. Twice a week, please. Consider quitting your jobs. You might have to make some life changes. Hugs and kisses. And lastly, from the UK, Dan, Dan a.k.a. Sengared. Mm-hmm. A great irreverent take on the episodes of TNG. A must-listen every week. Um... Um, has made me start to rewatch the series at the pace, uh, but at the pace of podcast an episode a week, which I've not done since I originally watched the show. Um, Matt and Andy have to suffer through their podcast, so shall I. Suffer, <laughs> suffer for their podcast, so shall I. And that's it. Thank you very much. Uh, we don't have a closing theme for. Uh, you know what? Sometimes we don't need to close everything. I don't know. I just I don't know how to move on to the next segment. But uh, folks, uh, we're going to open our hails now. Captain, we are being hailed. Andy, you just moved on to the next segment. I know. Don't but sell I, yourself short, buddy. I feel like the island should be closed in some way. It still feels open. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, from Ken Broom, uh, who writes the title of the thing is Ensign Ken. I don't want to be in the Admiral's Club. Starfleet needs people to dust isolinear chips and calibrate things, too. Love the podcast. So far, more than actual TNG episodes. Keep on trekking, Matt and Andy. Ensign Ken. Thanks, Ensign. Thank you, Ensign. Now, here is a uh, 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 from one of our fans that uh, that sent a, a voicemail to us. And if you wanna, if you want to call in, the number is eight one six Trek TNC. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, uh, were you going to play something and then had uh, some sort of issue with uh, what you were going to play? It's apparently what people like best about it. Whatever you're going to play is going to be way too loud. I'm going to tell you that right now. Yeah, let's I see. Would... Hi, Andy. How no, are you no, doing? Okay. I'm saying hi to you because I know that Matt won't do it because he's too busy. True. Anyway, I have a question about Star Trek that's always been kind of on my mind. What is with the three different phasers? You have the normal phaser that everyone knows and loves. You have a really tiny one about the size of a credit card, and you have the big right. Oh, did it get cut off? Well, I think we have his question. There's yeah. a type one phaser, type two phaser, right. and the phaser rifle. By Does the he way, mean the phaser. Yeah, right. Okay. You know what I forgot? What? Uh, I forgot to uh, put us all on board the Enterprise with a little bit of soothing. Someone did comment at war point. Core. Was there was there a poll that I didn't hear? I th- he felt like that we had we had had a poll and turned off the ambient noise. Did he? Did we accidentally do that? Did uh, I run through an episode without an ambient uh, 
engine sound because uh, apologize I'm bringing it back here it is oh we're back on board I will say this also I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast Um, I uh, just on a whim and I Matt listens Mm -hmm. to uh, who's your guy who's your ambient noise sleepy guy Uh, who's my ambient noise sleepy guy Uh, ender for life Ender for Life. And I lift, listen to Chris Knife's mm. um, ambient 24 hours of, of Star Trek Enterprise ambience. Yeah, sure. Um, but I just gave it a chance, and I tried because I was so enamored of the Romulans. I gave uh, his Romulan warboard ambient, ambient uh, noise. Uh-huh. And it's even more effective, Chris Knife's really? Romulan warbird sound. So. I'm on, I'm on, I'm sleeping on the Romulan warbird now, That's which you would think would be a more tense atmosphere. Incredible. Uh, so it's it's deeper. It's like, and I assume more threatening. So here's the deal. Okay, the Type One Phaser was right. a small concealable sidearm weapon. The Type Two is a larger sidearm, which evolved from a pistol-style design. Uh-huh. The Type Three is the rifle-sized weapon. So there. Varying degrees of power and uh, use. The what I did like a lot about the design of the original series uh, phasers was that the Type Two phaser docked into the handle of the. Ooh, that sounds of the of the of the of the phaser. And that is Enterprise D era. No, no, no. Do you see on the original series Star Trek phaser, right? Mm-hmm. Andy, you're familiar with this design. That one I know. Uh, do you see this black part right here? Yes. That's the tiny hand phaser. That pulls out and becomes the tiny phaser. In the new In series. the original series. In the original series? Yes, sir. People use that in the original series as the as just the little credit card version? Yeah. I don't remember that. It pulls out and becomes a little tiny little tiny guy. Was that in an episode? Uh, I feel like the, listen, it's in it's in it's canonical in my brain. Huh. Well, feel free to write in if you have an opinion one way or the other whether that existed on screen. Um, because in hmm, now I'm trying to remember in Star Trek Two, mm-hmm. what size were the phases? They have the big, uh, the, the big bigger ones. ones. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah. So here's a here's a here's did a diagram. It, did it enhance? It must have enhanced the firing. I think you're way. putting it into a much lab with delivering more power. Mm-hmm. I think you're you're getting more. Uh, yeah, here's a here's a diagram. Uh, the Type Two base unit amplified the power of the smaller Type One phaser, which slotted neatly into the compartment on top. With all as with all phasers of this period, it had a number of settings, including heat, stun, and kill. Hmm. So there you go. Interesting. Those are the phasers. I know, I know. <laughs> um, back into the hails, uh, please come back from T-Berg. Mm-hmm. Uh, her name is Tess. And uh, both Tess and Chris Bullard uh, urged us to uh, go to Chaos on the Bridge and then skip Star Trek The Motion Picture. There was miscommunication between Matt and I this week, so I watched Star Trek The Motion Picture. But we are, in fact, going to skip it due to time constraints and feelings of maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't fit right now. Yeah, so we have to... Andy and I have to record three episodes this week as to make sure that you lovely folks don't have a break. Uh, I.e., you get episodes every week from here on out. So what Andy and I are doing is we're going to record three this week, and we just thought, hey, you know what's the easiest thing to do? 
is record Chaos on the Bridge, and then boom, we're into the second season. So that's what we're doing. We're going into the second season. Um, so, uh, but we also wanted to, we were kicking around because of various requests to jump into guests mm-hmm. in season two. Um, we got a we got a lot of stuff on our folks. We have so much stuff you can't even imagine. There's a lot of there's a lot of exciting happenings Star Trek wise, which we're not gonna get into today, but I'm excited to finally have something in my life that I can tease and know about and uh, and hide from people. Usually I, I got nothing. Lots of Star Trek guys. The only things I'm hiding are boring things. Oh um, buddy. No, I your I life's know. very exciting. Oh thanks. To people. To who, who? Some people probably it, approve it. Omar's probably very excited. Omar is dead asleep next to Matt right now. <laughs> <laughs> Sleeping in the sun. <laughs> um, uh, I have tiny little earphones where he's listening to the Romulan Warbird, Warbird sound. Oh, buddy. Um, Brian Gullett says, love your show. Where are the best Star Trek slot machines? Asking slot machine... Slap machine aficionado, Myra. Oh, sure, uh, I think of myself as an aficionado. Uh, do you drive to Vegas purely to sit at a slot machine for hour after hour? Sure do. Some might say that's obsessive. <laughs> oh, uh, that's weird. I thought aficionado. Um, yeah. So listen, there's a few Star Trek slot machines out there. There's uh, one original series slot machine at the Venetian that we had a lot of fun with at my wedding uh, playing. Mm. Uh, Wesley Crusher and I sat down and had a great time on those machines. Uh, what a Star Trek dream. What a Star Trek dream indeed. And um, How did he do? Did uh, Wesley Crusher Will Will, Will took some joy out of it that I couldn't even take because <laughs> Will was happy to bet minimum. <laughs> and like really milk it and enjoy the animations and like have a good time at 30 cents a pop that's really whereas amazing. me was like well we got a max bet here four bucks four bucks four bucks sure so yeah wesley crusher would have figured out a way to rig the machine well that's what wesley would have done but will was happy to just watch it michael samet says underused romulans hi mm-hmm. guys first of all andy thanks for the wonderful impersonation of an australian accent last week mm-hmm. i think we we attempted and failed at an Australian accent. I suppose it's my fault for putting the word good day in there. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons Romulans were underused, certainly in the original series, was that they were more expensive to put on screen, i.e. the ears. Klingons, by comparison, only needed heavy makeup. Uh, Romulans are by far my favorite adversary of the Federation. I especially like where they've been taken in the Typhon Pact, which Matt informed me. was a, a series of books. Um, Michael, so this struck me as odd is it it's just the ears and the hair right was there well, anything else I mean they're gonna be they're, they're gonna basically the Vulcans? problem is they're gonna have to have prosthetic pieces you know built for each one they're gonna all have ears and then the uh, whereas the Klingons you could just like spray them with a base tan and 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 put a fake goatee on and have a great time in the old days yeah uh, would that have been that more much more prohibitively expensive than just Vulcans, or is the fact that it was only Spock? Well, you didn't really see that many Vulcans. I see. Spock had his ears, and that was that. Gotcha. Um, and I'm going to finish out the uh, the emails uh, with this one. Uh, hi, I was looking for someone to fit my ass ski. <laughs> I must have the wrong number. <laughs> Bye. 
<laughs> a little bit of a cheap joke, but I figured I'd give him his due. <laughs> a cheap joke. That's a great joke. There you go. He needed his, he needed his aft ski fitted. That was our previous aft ski hour that I kept repeating. You fucking moron. Ridiculous letters that it spelled out because it was the only ones I could find. Uh, our, our phone. Oh, sorry. Wow, I just got real loud. Our phone number is? Um, it is 816 trek tnc beautiful our twitter handle is uh at star trek tnc as is our instagram handle and as i said before our email if you want to send us a hail or if you want to hail us i guess it's the proper way to say that then it's uh star trek tnc pod at gmail.com and we don't have because uh we discussed it and we decided not to do this day in star trek history because it's so recent with um, chaos on the bridge, so um, we just launch into the show now. And don't you wish we had had a theme song for that? We had no. Um, oh, the, no, we're being hailed close. Nope. Yeah, you got to close the hail okay. first of all. Frequencies closed, sir. And I have to ask you: Do we not have any prime correctives? Uh, there were no prime correctives. Oh this my week. god! I must have hit a hundred percent on yeah, that last week. That's right. Great. People were intimidated. I'm so happy. Uh, so here we go with chaos on the bridge. I thought I would play uh, Shatner's opening narration, the captain's log, if you will. Indeed. An iconic television series is relaunched, reimagined by its legendary creator, backed by a major studio. What could go wrong? Oh boy! What a great voice this guy has. I'm just gonna I'm gonna play this. This is the little snippets at the top where they sort of that sounds do good. the broad strokes of what's happening here. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and it's fucking great. Gene's ideas about the future and about man are wacky doodle. Red alert! Shields up! <laughs> He was a flawed man. He had great virtues. He had great flaws. I thought Gene was going to come across the table at me. I saw firsthand Gene's battling with the studio. Gene was considered somewhat of a pain in the neck. He was kind of a blustery guy. Gene wasn't the easiest person to get along with, but he stuck up for his beliefs and his concepts. There's just a lot of infighting. It was all chaos. There's really scary stuff going on. There's a lawyer going around looking in people's desks when they're not there. <laughs> I spent the first That's couple of years just worried I was going to be fired. Have you met him? My agent was the yes. first person to tell us there wasn't a hope in hell that this show will even make it through the first season. William Shatner presents Chaos on the Bridge. Now, uh, in reading a couple of things, um, not that many, they... Uh, there was a little bit of a suggestion. Is there a little bit of of uh, joyful Schadenfreude from? Uh, oh, William are you Shatner? kidding me? This he fucking is delighted. <laughs> He's delighted that there was so much trouble getting this thing off the ground. Sure. Um, they, they, there's so much. There's so many layers of this pod of this podcast of this documentary. But it's really, I think, ultimately, it's about Gene Roddenberry. Sure. Uh, and it's a fascinating period in his life where he's deteriorating. Right. Um, it's the old, it's the king 
trying to hang on to his kingdom. Yeah. It's it's King Lear, really. Yeah. <gasps> wow. <laughs> Picard would turn and look in his his book on Shakespeare and ah, uh, and Andy. About, let's so, let's put on a King Lear production that is about. Gene oh Roddenberry. God. This is amazing and so specific, and no one will ever watch that except for the people listening to this. <laughs> we could just do it at conventions, and we could rent a ballroom next to some convention. Anyway, would be we're, great. Putting on, we're putting on the King Lear, which is about Gene Roddenberry. Oh my God. Everyone come watch. <laughs> I really want to do that. All the dumb things that I want to do that we don't have time to do. <laughs> All right. Uh, um, well, let's hear a little thing- bit. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say right off the top with Gene Roddenberry, I realized he was, a, he was a veteran. I didn't realize he was a bomber pilot in World War II. Yeah. And then he later went on to be a Pan Am pilot. No wonder this guy was such a sexaholic. That guy must have completely cleaned up. <laughs> no, uh, it's really no wonder that he, uh, he was, uh, had a mistress. It's shocking that that guy, to think of that guy being such a, a nerdaholic like just guy tippity tapping on his typewriter like us and he was flying bombers i'll tell you who's not flying bombers anyone on the goldberg's writing staff it's true Roddenberry had an incredible loyalty he was very loyal to his friends no gene screwed over all his friends as well as his enemies you know he had a lot of demons <laughs> he was very perceptive had a high iq gene was a historical revisionist creative and contributive and collaborative very intimidating guy he's good natured he could be a bully but he was a nice man and he was a generous man gene had a way of making you feel really good about yourself he could inspire people to do better than they believed they were capable of i just found him a decent man and had a lot of worldly experience a bomber pilot in the pacific decorated pan am pilot worldwide i had great arguments about philosophy and all sorts of things. He was a really remarkable man, I thought. Gene was fun. But then later, as things were not going as well, I think he got somewhat sour. There's this 20-year in the desert for Gene. He's the forgotten man. The things that didn't happen were disappointing and very saddening. So think about that. He's uh, he's coming off of Star Trek, Mm -hmm. you know, a show that gets canceled three seasons in on NBC. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he's got, you know, uh, how many failed pilots? Four failed pilots? Three failed pilots and Star Trek The Motion Picture. Right. Um, so he's got to be, I don't know what that feels like to have so many swings and to have so many misses. Interestingly, one of the ones that I didn't, I didn't check before, uh, was it a television film? It says, or I guess it was a failed pilot and that's what they mean by by television film for Spectre. Yeah. Which I was really hoping would be James Bond connected for you. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> it was not. Uh, which is described as William Sebastian Robert Culp is a former criminologist who now studies the occult to explain the problem of human evil. He's been cursed on one of his adventures by the demon Asmodeus, which I remember from D&D, um, <laughs> leaving him in constant need of... I wonder if that's where they got it from. It's released in 1977. Was D&D around then? No. Early version? Uh, I think so, right? He summons an old colleague, Dr. Ham, Gig Young, to his home to help him with a case involving et cetera, et cetera. Um, anyway, that's kind of an early X-Files-y kind of thing, sounds like to me. <laughs> that's what the theme is, Matt. That's right. Uh, I didn't realize that Maurice Hurley uh, had passed away. 
Oh, I didn't realize that either. Yeah, he passed away in February of 2015. Oh. Um, we barely knew you. We barely, barely knew you. The Equalizer, Miami Vice. Uh, writing and producing for Baywatch. Diagnosis Murder. I gotta say, 24. I, 24 too. And La Femme Nikita. I gotta say, I had... And I think I maybe even have spoken to it in in previous um, in previous episodes or episodes uh, of giving him credit for the shift on the show when Roddenberry left. But it, after watching this documentary a second time, mm-hmm. I am not certain about that now because I was watching it closer. I, mean, I think my perspective originally was, oh, he came from all these cop shows. He had all this, you know, d- uh, came from a grounding of conflict and everything. Yeah. Um, and so he injected the conflict back in the show, which he may have done. But there's a really a lot said in this documentary about how he doesn't know anything about sci-fi. And he was arguing with people about stuff that I'm like, oh, well, you're in clearly in the wrong there. So I'm not sure anymore. He wrote he wrote three episodes of 24. Well, what does that prove? That he worked until he died. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's all that proves. I yes. mean, uh, that's more power to you, buddy. You can fucking do that. Ironically, a very sci-fi heavy episodes of Twenty Four, where uh, Jack Bauer <laughs> goes to space, and uh, no, haven't we all gone to space <laughs> at one point or another? In those twenty-four hours, he went to space, <laughs> crashed back down. Um, so here we go. Let's hear what Paramount well, there's a wants guy to do. named Mel Harris. He called me one day and he said, "We're going to do." Uh, a new Star Trek. The studio came to him and said, we want to start a new series. Gene wasn't uh, all that excited about doing another Star Trek for Paramount. And so we created this series and Gene went, whoa, wait, no. He saw the studio as an adversary. Gene in the studio, it was a war, it really was. Gene says, no, you're not doing Star Trek without me, it's my property. Gene had the power. They weren't going to proceed. And he said, well, damn it, I could do it. Finally, after years of trying to convince him to do a new Star Trek series, he agreed. He didn't mean to go in there and end up coming out with a new series to develop. You know, he was looking forward to retirement just a couple of months. Gene agreed, and we had the voice a of very, John Pike, very... the pre- the president of the Paramount of Paramount Network Television, uh, in 1986. Uh, this guy really plays a huge role in this whole picture. And I think he might be my favorite person in the whole thing. Interestingly, he looks very much like other network presidents. They all—they all seem to have these this they clothed all are hair. White man with blue eyes. <laughs> there's, there's is, that that. is that what you're telling me? Yeah, I mean, they all seem like you could reach your hand into the patriarchy bowl and pull. They're all out. older, older white men with blue eyes. That's interesting. Yeah. They all uh, have beards. Oh, so weird. They're all how that gray happens. to white hair and very distinguished looking. So uh, and, uh, probably yeah. pretty mean inside. Sure. Anxious negotiation with Gene's lawyer from Bullhead City by the name of Leonard Mazelish. <laughs> Leonard, Leonard Mazelish is my favorite character of all time. Uh, he, I wish that he was alive for this documentary, just so that so much. He's such a. He, it's such a bizarre. I wonder if he had a storied enough career that we could do a movie about him. It seems like it seems like it's a season of Better Call Saul where he gets involved with the TV producer. All right, let's pitch it. 
Somebody get get Vince Gilligan on the line. <laughs> oh, hey guys! Oh, thanks for the call. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think, know if I'm going to go with that. I think we got some other things I think in we the have hopper. Some other thoughts. So, but we appreciate. But y'all are great. <laughs> y'all are great. I really like what you're doing over there. Always oh, a gentleman. Oh well, you take care. Okay, bye. I don't know. Some fuckers from some podcast wanted me to make solid Hollywood guy. That was uh, him off the phone. <laughs> For those listening, uh, who are wondering, so let's hear the let's hear the uh, ballad of Leonard Mazelish, which will be the name of our series. Oh, that's great! Oh, Leonard, Gene's wacky attorney, who in himself could be a movie of the week. <laughs> he was not the nicest person in the world. A lot of people hated Leonard. I can recall one day when Leonard was almost clutching his chest, and I'm saying, I hope you die. I personally never had That's amazing. <laughs> Gene wanted to be the good guy, so the lawyer got to be the bad guy. Leonard was carrying the wrath of Gene for all these years because Gene felt he had gotten screwed on the original series. Paramount owns the rights. There was never any dispute about that. But Gene Roddenberry is the creator of Star Trek. Gene had as much celebrity as the show itself. I actually thought he was imperative to the DNA of a successful reboot of Star Trek. So, what happens? I needed Gene Roddenberry, and I needed to make a deal. Okay. And Leonard Mazelish knew exactly where he had me. <laughs> um, it is a, the series rights is a very interesting thing. He had did he have no ownership over the show? That is crazy. But if he had no ownership over the show, why do they need him? Well, he's it's presented. They need that, him that, just for fan. That's what Pike is presenting. And a Pike is it Pike? John Pike? Yeah. Ironically, Pike. I know. Um, yeah, that's the way he presents it, and I find it questionable. Right. He presents it as like he had me over a barrel for the drama of the you know the face-offs and the poker he was playing, but yeah. it's like we can easily see Paramount going, all right, screw you then. All right, but, Gene, well, we appreciate you coming in. I guess, and we're going to do it without you. I guess there is an element of if you have Gene Roddenberry saying screw these people. I think if you had not heard from him at all since the original series, then it would have been easier. Or even if, or even if. Um, um, Star Trek, the motion picture had come out and people had kind of middling feelings about it, nothing else, then I think you could have gotten away with it. But because the Star Trek movies had continued and been beloved, yeah, I think you got to have Roddenberry on board. So I'm going uh, back on what I said. You're going back on what you said. Andy, you weren't committed to that for very long. I really wasn't. I really showed no character in that exchange. He, uh, he, was, not, he was not a fit man, they say. Roddenberry. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's let's hear it. Man, every weekend, Majel would pour him onto the train and send him to La Costa, the facility where they dry him out. Because of the drinking, because of the recreational drug use, he needed to clean himself up, which he did over the next couple of months. As everything was being worked out, the I's were being dotted, the T's were being crossed. Now it was decided. All right, Gene, you will assemble your team. Does anybody have a concept at this point? No. They had no cast. They had nothing. You go back and conceptualize what this show is. Gene brought in 
Almost immediately, Eddie Milkis, Bob Justman, me, Dorothy Fontana. People that he had trusted and relied on heavily during the original series production. So we began to meet at uh, lunchtime at the Paramount Commissary in the private room there. Everybody in the commissary would watch us walk in and walk into the executive dining room. There goes a $100 million deal on the hoof. And it was fun. It was really fun. <laughs> I... It's so, it's weird to think about, like, the idea of, like, those writers just being called back up 20 years later. Yeah. And just saying, hey. What was their perspective? Getting the band back together. And also, it I don't know if it was mentioned in the clips we played, but just that Roddenberry was at conventions kind of just signing stuff for money. Yeah. Like, that that's how low he went. And yet... And I can see, based on the the level of ego that the documentary attributes to him, and I think we've heard from other sources, the uh, the fact that he still was playing hardball and resisting another Star Trek series being made is fascinating. Yeah. Like that's his level of no, I have to prove I can right. do something else before I go back to this. Is amazing. I mean, he was he he needed the money. My favorite drawing in this whole thing. You know, because the documentary uses these amazing il- illustrations. My favorite one is the one of him, Roddenberry in the in the Ben Franklin coat, <laughs> holding out the Enterprise over Hollywood as lightning is striking. <laughs> I, I just find that one delightful. <laughs> that is a great one. I never remembered that one. I would pay for that one like, right. on my wall. Anyway, so let's they cut the episode order from twenty six to thirteen. <laughs> and he wanted to take Star Trek and use that as the cornerstone of a new network. We had the commitment to do the new series, and we assumed that it would be a 26-episode commitment. Well, at the 11th hour, they cut that to 13. I can't make the numbers work at 13. I need 26. I'm not quite sure what to do here, but let me go explore the other three networks. It was a science fiction show, and at that point in the mid-80s, there there was no science fiction on television. First, I went to NBC, to Brandon Tartikoff. It was dismissed out of hand. I then went to ABC and Brandon Stoddard, and he thought it was simply a bad idea. The third meeting was with Kim LeMeister, president of CBS Entertainment, and he said, let's do it as a miniseries. Well, that clearly doesn't work. It is then when we went back at Paramount, Lucy Sohaney, who was president of distribution, said, wait a minute, I can give you 26 episodes. Why don't you produce the program? We will take it out in first-run syndication. Well, nobody had ever done a program like that in first-run syndication. Tell me what first-run syndication is. First-run syndication is programming that is sold basically market by market, station by station, on independent stations, wherever they want to place it, or on network stations outside of the so-called prime time, which is 8 to 11. So all of a sudden, we went from a cornerstone for the Fox network to this new hybrid for first-run syndication. And by the way, Gene Roddenberry believed we were going to do a network show. I mean, one thing I got to say... That's like the earliest example of, fine, we'll take it to Netflix. Right. This is what I'm saying. This this executive, Lucy Salhaney, invented first-run syndication, like basically invented the cable world 
like on that level in terms of premium content, it's crazy. And she's to me a really unsung hero in in television history. I mean, she made a fortune and became chairwoman of Fox broad, Broadcasting at a certain point, but um, nonetheless, like, uh, it is interesting to think about the fact that this was not on a network and it was in syndication. It's, Such a thing that I don't really see anymore. You no. don't see syndicated shows like. You know, they're mid '90s with your Baywatches, your Hercules, your Xenas, your Deep Space Nine, um, all first run syndication shows. Um, Do you want to explain first run syndication? I think I think he did. Okay, good. <laughs> I guess he did. John Pike did it for me. Sure. Um, but all these shows that would be on at like seven o'clock on Fridays at seven. Yeah. You know, it was crazy. I don't even remember what time. I feel like Star Trek: The Next Generation. We watched it on Sundays. At like 6 or 7 p.m. It was definitely a weird time. I don't remember either. Um, but yeah, it was, it's, I mean, also like it became a thing where the idea of, a, of it being a network, uh, of, of, of Star Trek being on a network is foreign to me. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I'm trying to think, should we talk about the making it a two hour premiere? Sure. Which is something we've we talked about when we watched Encounter at Firepoint, how spectacularly weird it is. Right. I mean, the big thing. I don't know if you want to play the clip. Go ahead. Uh, let me find it. Uh, the big thing that that to me was the the sort of fascinating detail to re- to remember is um, how much he kind of <laughs> just flat out screwed over DC Fontana. Oh, totally. So An iconic the, television sorry. series. Finding is it. Don't I have it. I'm almost there. Oh, okay. I have it there. Meeting that I went to in Roddenberry's office. Yes. The big discussion was whether it would be a one-hour or a two-hour pilot. Roddenberry wanted it to be a one-hour pilot. The studio wanted it to be a two-hour pilot, and it was a big blustery argument. The premiere episode, we have to make a splash with, and that must be a two-hour episode. Roddenberry didn't want to do a two-hour. I thought Gene was going to come across the table at me. We're not doing a two-hour, and I'm not writing a two-hour. And I said, Gene, quite frankly, if you do not do this, I will bar you from the lot. We are going forward with a two-hour. I don't know who's going to write it. And now everybody's looking around the room, and nobody is saying nothing. I'm looking to my left, where my bosses are. I'm looking to my right, where the syndication people are. There's poker being played right here. And nobody is backing me. Because when I said, I will lock you out of this lot, and I'm not kidding you. What are you thinking? I'm thinking, what if he gets up and walks out? I'm screwed. If this program were not blessed, by Roddenberry, we would have placed the franchise in serious jeopardy. These millions of dollars are hanging on his yes to a a two-hour thing. And it's more like tens of millions of dollars. It's a lot of money. All right, so you were bluffing? I was bluffing. Holy cats. And he knew I was dead serious. I want that to be my catchphrase. But you were bluffing? I was bluffing. He blinked. Play poker? Occasionally. Is, All right, so this is the DC I was asked to come in by Gene, and he said, would you write the pilot? And I brought in the counter at Farpoint. So I was writing introduction of the new Enterprise, the new crew, 
the new captain, obviously. Then he says, I have to add 30 minutes to the script because the studio wants my name on the pilot, which was a lie. Jean wanted Dorothy to write the two-hour script. She said she couldn't do it. She said, I, I can't in, in less than two weeks. Gene, on the other hand, could write very well under pressure. And he came back the next week with Encounter at Firepoint, the two-hour story, which introduced the Q character, who was not in the original story that Dorothy wrote. Q was so totally different. It was like he was thrust into that story. Now, I like John Delancey. I thought he did a wonderful job. And Q came back in other stories. Right, it has nothing to do no, with John Delancey. No, nothing to do with that. Yeah. But it was like, this is not what the story was supposed to be about. It was supposed to be about the mystery of Farpoint and putting this new crew together. He wrote the Q character. Yes. And fleshed it out another half hour. Right. And then said it was a script by Gene Roddenberry. Well, that went to arbitration. Of course, it was a split credit. Another question I have. What? Yes. It went into arbitration, and then they continued to work together in season one? <laughs> that is super awkward. Uh, I love this Paramount Pictures DC Fontana memo they show yeah. to David Gerald. Uh, DG, needless to say, you never saw this. I'm in touch with the guild on it. <laughs> right. And what is, what is it saying there? That's from, that's from Roddenberry? No, this is from DC to, oh, DC, to, right. to one of the you. other writers. Gotcha. It's crazy. What done was he had jumped her credit. He was now getting half the residuals for that episode, and that's in perpetuity. Gene did this brilliant job of turning this one-hour story into a two-hour story. He wrote half of it, she wrote half of it. He came back with a script, and to this day, I have no idea what that episode was about. <laughs> <laughs> but there was no way in the world I was going to give any notes whatsoever to Mr. Roddenberry. <laughs> I mean, it's just a spectacular... Now, is that Richard Arnold, the research consultant, who says that he wrote a brilliant script? Yes. Because that, uh, that guy, I, I, I go back and forth on him, because at first it was like, he's also the one who at the beginning says, I did not have a problem with Mazelish. Um, well, he's Gene's other assistant. I see. So he, oh, he's always going to side with Roddenberry, right? I gotcha. Doesn't it feel like that? That, that well, it certainly explains a lot to me. He admits that people hated Mazelish and that he was addicted to Dorothy Fontana, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He's like a lot of his opinions. I'm like, I don't understand why you're. <laughs> what your take is on this. It's very weird. We were having great fun until December of 86. In about February, Leonard Mazelish moved in full-time and things started to go to hell. He came on the lot and got his own office. We went into production the first season. Even though he was the executive producer's lawyer, he would hand me scripts saying these are notes from Gene. But I knew Gene's handwriting and they were not notes from Gene. The That's writers got a hold of this knowledge thing. that Leonard Mazelish, who was not a Writers Guild member was working on scripts. Here's a guy who'd never written a word in his life. He was telling writers how to write Star Trek scripts. And this is very much against the Writers Guild. My age. I feel like the minimally. Old, I feel like the old school writers really hold the guild in a much higher esteem. Sure. Like they're like this is just against guild standards. We can't do this. <laughs> that's, yeah, I mean <laughs> if that was said in our room it's like, oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess it is. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. We are being screwed over in that way. <laughs> um the the, the just the, 
I would love to know what Mazelish's take was when he was doing. He's like, I gotta save the show. These geese people don't understand what television should be. Captain Picard, I know what Captain Picard wants. I'm about instead of French, she's German. It's like, what? What was? What were his changes? Why did he think he was helping? Did he think this is his way in? I don't understand. Took the stuff to the guild, and the guild filed a grievance, and Leonard Mazelish got banned from the lot. <laughs> amazing. It's unbelievable. It's insane to even think about. Imagine if Adam's lawyer got an office yeah. and started changing scripts. It would be so... And went so far as to handwrite notes. And say, and, these are from these Adam. These are from Adam. It's insane. <laughs> It's so hilarious. Oh, my God. If I had a lawyer, I might make him move into the office. That'd be great. He kind of snuck back in again. We'd go out to lunch. We'd come back. Leonard Mazelish had snuck into people's computers. What was he looking for? hovering around my room, opening the door, peeking through, like, see if I was in there. And I just said, something I can help you with, Leonard? And he leaped about a foot and a half. I think he thought he was speaking with Gene's voice, but I don't think Gene ever heard the way he spoke to people. Nobody liked him. Gene had these wonderful relationships with people who had worked on the original series, like Dorothy Fontana. And Leonard was... Who he stole credit from. In particular, I didn't like him. <laughs> Leonard Mazelis was running around hiring people. Morris Hurley, Bob and neither one of them came in knowing Star Trek, and they were immediately promoted above me and Dorothy. Why are people being promoted above us? We're the ones who should be the showrunners, the producers here. I found him to be an unsavory character. He's standing right next to an open window, no screen, no anything. And I'm thinking, it would be so easy to push that bastard out the window. <laughs> it would be so easy. <laughs> Say it again. David, go do it. Go push that bastard out the window. They'll give you a medal. <laughs> so hilarious. I, it's so crazy. This whole thing is just, <laughs> it's such an insane start to a fucking series. Yeah. I just can't imagine the idea of a, li- a lawyer running around with writing notes. It's, it's like that scene in um, some kind of monster, the the Metallica documentary, uh-huh. when the, they're the sitting the around therapist. and the therapist starts yeah. shoot like write something like, on a writes, post-it like, note, writes lyrics. It. It's amazing. <laughs> it's like I love I love the reactions when he hands the thing. Just like I'm going to pretend this didn't yeah, happen. That's exactly what Headfield does. He's like, uh huh, okay. <laughs> Um, oh God, it's it's just crazy. I like hearing from people like uh, Braga and uh, Moore, yeah, on this whole thing. Um, let's see, what else do we have? Here? I would love to read DC Fontana's original Farpoint draft. Sure, and see what the distinctions were. Uh, I I go back to that. It was just not a just not a dynamic pilot which may have been just the inherent thing of uh i don't know if you want to read that star trek docs thing you 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 dug up uh from the twitter feed of um of his of roddenberry's directive about no conflict but yeah um there i don't even i don't think i can find it but uh it's just very much what we've talked about before, which is that, that Gene Roddenberry doesn't think that there should be conflict between characters. He thinks that humans have all worked out all their differences in the 24th century. Yeah. Um, oh, Andy pulled up the memo. He accessed it very quickly. Uh, this is to all concerned from Gene Roddenberry. We have accumulated a considerable number of death crisis and or jeopardy to enterprise stories. 
too many of these will give us a Buck Rogerish look. Perhaps the problem here is that we're thinking of this particular Star Trek too much as an action-adventure show rather than a science fiction show with lots of action and movement. We probably also have accumulated enough revenge or payback stories. Add to these a number of look-back-on-the-past stories, and it may be that we're not doing enough going now into the new into new adventure stories. Is is the same true of creature stories? Any comments, please? Gene Roddenberry. That's to Maurice Hurley, Bob Lewin, Herb Wright, David Gerald, DC Fontana, Bob Justman, and Rick Berman. I'm very confused, by the way, in the... Um, oh, by the way, as a, speaking as a Buck Rogers fan, it's funny that he references Buck Rogers and he's clearly doing it in a demeaning way yeah. when it's like, you know, there's kind of the same patterns in Battlestar Galactica and Star Wars at the time. So you're just clearly swerving away from the ones where we, people would go, well, weren't those things successful? <laughs> <laughs> um, you pick Buck Rogers, which was also successful in its first season. But um, the, the other question I was going to have is, I'm very confused, and I wonder um, if the uh, the 50-year history book addresses it, why the the advancements in title did happen over people like DC Fontana. Like, why was Maurice Hurley brought in at all? Just theoretically to write the ship for production reasons? Sounds like Leonard Mazelish wanted it to happen. Oh, was, was that just mentioned? Yeah. I didn't catch that. Also, but how would Leonard Mazelish... N- know to hire a TV writer like how would he know how to do that maybe he had a relationship it's, he certainly seemed to have the same spe- you know the same uh, attitude as Maurice Hurley <laughs> Maurice Hurley is very it's very uh, confrontational Paramount saying come and meet Roddenberry we want to consider you as a writer for Star Trek the next generation I said that's a joke it's a joke but I want to meet Roddenberry who wouldn't want to meet Roddenberry I was coming off two cop shows. I was coming off Miami Vice, very good show. Just to let you know. Equalizer, very good show. Just to let you know. So he gives me the first episode to rewrite. We pass each other in the hallway four or five times a day. He won't look at me. Apparently Gene didn't like what he wrote. It was probably the first time we heard the battle. And he raises up behind his desk this great bird-like creature and he points his finger at me like this and he says, you don't know the difference between shields and deflectors. And that went on for weeks. <laughs> what did that say to you about what you were confronted? He didn't want me, Hurley, the writer. He didn't want me to write me. He wanted me to write him. Yes, he created Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly what any creator wants in a series, is you to write the thing that you're doing. Yes. Um, ugh. it's insane. It's insane. This whole—I can't believe the show happened. What is your take on Hurley? Um, not to put you in a that's interesting because I, I, I know he's he, your, the Godfather. Yeah, he's the Godfather future child. of uh, of all of uh, of everything I've come to love about Star Trek was Marcus Hurley. <laughs> um, it's hard to think. I mean. I've had head writers brought in and things like that that you're like, oh, God, what is this? Uh-huh. Like, it was once, someone once said to me that the head writer in a comedy room did not have to be the funniest guy in the room. Uh-huh. And I said, 
Uh, no, but it helps. <laughs> That's accurate. Uh, when I complained about a particular head writer and just how terrible a time we were having trying to all get on the same page as this unfunny person. Uh-huh. Um, so it... Uh, <laughs> who, who took the, the other perspective? Uh, you know, we'll talk off air. All right, we can fine. talk all about it. I'm happy to. Yeah, I guess you would give everything away. But, um, but yeah, so I get it. Like this other person being in who has experience in television, but not the same kind of television. I always think that that's always a problem. I think uh, that when uh, someone who does a different type of television is done is brought in to do a, a type of television they are not accustomed to doing, it is a rough fit. I think that's true. But the the attitude of like one of the reasons I was confused is is that at, at like from my perspective, part of the problem with the show is exactly the the memo you read that that Roddenberry had made this one essential decision that affects all of the right. drama in the show that is if not the wrong decision, then a decision that they didn't figure out how to come up with a solution for, which is probably to come up with more conflict from the outside and highlight the characters, which they talk about at the end of the show uh, in each episode. Um, So it was this essential problem that Roddenberry had that it felt like if you bring in someone who's from a more classic cop showy structure, he could solve. But it's going to butt up against everything that this this mandate is. That's true. You know? And maybe necessarily so. Maybe it needs to happen. But I would argue that, for instance, uh, Nick Meyer uh, wrote Star Trek II after watching every episode of the old series and took the essence of what the show was and respected it and gave this like authenticity and everything, but he reinvented it yeah. for the current medium and time, which is, I think, what Hurley should have done. And I will, I will also say, and I don't know if you have this clip at some point, that is what it sounds like Tracy Torme did with Conspiracy, which I credited Hurley with. Mm. Um, and Hurley's complaint was he thought it was too dark. Um, but then Hurley also claims he was the one pushing for the Borg. So, I believe that mankind in the 24th century had resolved all conflict between themselves. That developed between the first Star Trek and the second Star Trek. Back in the 60s, Gene wanted to be the womanizer and always gets the beautiful woman and always punches out the bad guy and always wins. And in 1986, Gene is not going to be down there on the front lines punching, but he will be the all-seeing advisor, the wise man. Gene's conception on Next Gen is almost heavenly in that everyone's at peace. It takes away everything you need for drama in Gene's wacky doodle vision of the future. The real trouble in year one is the victims. How to get a good script out. If you tell a writer that the characters can't have conflict between them, you're just cutting his legs off. Some writers chafed against Gene's vision of a better future where Andy. there was no conflict. The yes. essence of, of drama is conflict. There was no evil. There's no money anymore. There was no jealousy. There's no fighting anymore. No separate individual goals or ideas. We negotiate. No tension. What? <laughs> so what? The dramatic constraints it put on me as a writer. Really? 
Firefly had to find new ways to tell stories. When you look at the original series, there's a lot of conflict between those characters. They argue a lot, and crewmen on the Enterprise are yelling at each other. If our people are perfect and have no problems or conflicts between them, there is no story here. We would walk around in each other's offices going, I don't know how to write about that. I don't know how to write about perfect people. That was Gene's vision of Star Trek The Next Generation. Take it or leave it, and work within it or don't. So the dictums gave the writers a lot of stress and struggle, and then, in most cases, Gene would just take the scripts and he would just rewrite them. And these writers were not used to that, and that was very, very frustrating, and a lot of writers left. And the turnover that first season was 30 writers uh, and staff members left the show. The first season of a TV show with that kind of turnover? There was a writer who wrote... Isn't that insane? Yeah. 30? It, it must have... I mean, in and of itself, that would cause an, an impossible work environment. That level of turnover. It's crazy. Uh, here's the script. Here's the Tracy talking about conspiracy. Okay. Come in and they had their own ideas. And, no, you know, Gene didn't want anybody to have their own ideas. This was his world. No writer could come in and give me an idea that I would accept, if it, no matter how great the idea was, if it broke that concept. Showdown. Thing called conspiracy, and I was intentionally trying to shake things up and do a different kind of story. I was the keeper of the grail, and nothing was going to change it. Maury came back to me and said, It's not Star Trek, it's too dark, it's got a dark ending, it's unhappy, it's this and that, and he turned it down. Somebody overruled him, maybe it was Rick Berman. But somebody loved the script and thought it's exactly what we should be doing. But Maury and I had a very bad relationship from that point on. <laughs> I mean, this is why I'm confused. Because on one hand, Maury certainly says that he wants... He, 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 he was bothered by the lack of conflict. On the other mm -hmm. hand, he says he was the keeper of the grail, saying he was defending what Roddenberry wanted. On the other hand, he's saying that everything Roddenberry says was insane. <laughs> uh, it is a lot of colors. Yeah. Um, I guess let's hear about the the Denise thing, which is John Pike at his finest. Okay. Had Denise go halfway through the season, which was just such a screw-up. Episodes would go by, and, uh, you know, I'd maybe say, aye, aye, Captain. She was such a popular character. Now, Denise Crosby clearly is not Katherine Hepburn. <laughs> but you know, the camera really loved her. I used to ask them to do a mock-up of my legs and just put him up there oh, you'd on have the to bridge. Come, you'd have to come in for a shot. I was always there. 15-hour days just standing on the horseshoe. The actor inside of me was beginning to chew on my own arm. And I think Denise quit after 20-some-odd episodes to become a motion picture star. When I think about... <laughs> His, he rolled his eyes so, so hard. <laughs> so obnoxious. Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. I think about, you know, sometimes they seem to negotiate the way the studio was negotiating with Denise's people. And it ended up with her just going. It's crazy. I don't think you can sustain a show where the characters are not accessible to the audience. Where, where you don't see somebody overcoming a flaw. If there is no conflict and no tension between people, then there is no relationship between people, and, and that show will wither. And that's what was happening. I tried to make it sustain. 
<laughs> he's crazy. I want to create this new adversary, the Borg. I want the Federation to form allies against this overwhelming, awesome adversary. Now, I wonder if this is revisionist history. At the end of the first season, there's an episode called uh, The Neutral Zone, which was the arc for the second season. And the arc for the second season was going to be, here come the Borg. Would have been cool. It definitely would have been. Well, I mean, and I they guess. are clearly setting it up in the neutral zone. When does it not hap- happen until season three? At the end of the second season, they defeat the board. Then what happened? Writer strike. End of the first season. Writer strike begins. Couldn't talk to the writers. Couldn't talk to Roddenberry. And the hiatus dragged on and on and on. It was five and a half months. A dream. <laughs> I'm, I'm having lunch with a couple of executives from Paramount, and they were saying. It's really bad, and I think your show will be one of the first to be cancelled. It's looking so bad. And I I already adjusted the idea that maybe we'll get two or three years out of this show. Suddenly, the strike was resolved, and we went back, and we started the second season very late. And we started it without Gates. I I mean, you've already watched this, but I felt like this was a little bit of a spoiler. (laughs) Yes. Um, yeah, we started with Gates McFadden, who sits out a year. Yeah. With uh, Pulaski, who I enjoy Pulaski. I'm the only one who enjoys Pulaski. There was one other fan we heard from who enjoys Pulaski. It's just a nice dynamic change. Uh-huh. It's very, uh, it's very uh, McCoy-esque, I find her. It's interesting that they say in, that it's, or they they say that it's it's because of uh, personality conflict which she it sounds like it's just like she talked back to someone <laughs> gates yes yeah which is sort of uncool you're respected you fight your argument and then you either win or lose he just didn't like the way the character of dr crusher was working out there'd been a few issues over that first season about dr crusher's character and i think they thought at times that gates was a little bit high-handed and you know um maybe being uh, a little demanding i never experienced that i had heard that, that somebody said it's either her or me you know one of us has to go she was adored and suddenly she was gone I wonder if we her complaint was my character seems like it has she has a learning disability. Own <laughs> 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 TV actress at the time. That never quite worked. What? Just didn't get on with the cast all that well, and the character of Dr. Pulaski just never really quite solidified. It was awkward a lot of the time. They were not that interested in renewing me, and I was certainly not that interested. When I worked with you, we had scenes. It was all actors. By the time you got to Star Trek Next Generation, it was a a vast technical world that had some characters placed in it. I don't don't know that that is a sound evaluation. Just burn. Just a sick burn. What's your take on that statement? Uh... I, I think they all hated her. Like they all hated her, and she hated them. And I don't know why. Well, I, but her writing it off on it was you know on the original show it was more acty. Yeah. And, and this show it wasn't. I mean, I don't. I don't. Even as someone who's frustrated by the lack of conflict in the show, I don't concur with that perspective. Right. right. It's a crazy perspective. 
Yeah. You can't say that when you're when you have to work with Patrick Stewart. All yeah, the time. that's where it goes out the and window. Most of her scenes are with Patrick Stewart or Spiner. Right. Uh, come on. Come on. Um, there was a there was a run in there. It doesn't really matter if we find it or not, but uh, where Pike said that he would go to Rick Berman, like if he had a budgetary issue, and he would do it. And Berman, he would ask, "Hey, I got a problem." And as I as I was understanding what he was saying, I have a problem elsewhere in in, stu- in the studio as a whole. Yeah, I, need, I have a two two million dollar shortfall, and Rick Berman would find it for him out of the TNG budget. Yeah. Kind of gross. Right? Kind of not cool. But Berman worked for Paramount. He did. I guess he was a Paramount guy, and they let him out to do to work on the show. The only thing I could kind of think is, like, I guess he knew the inner workings of Paramount, that maybe that is the kind of thing that allowed them to survive the writer's strike. That's like, well, Berman is such a ball player. Maybe, yeah. So I, gotta, got I guess this, I got to... They've got this caboodle over here that they can just pull money out of whenever they need to. But I would just tell you, if I was a showrunner and I... Heard my my guy was doing that, you know. Ugh, man, I would be enraged. It's not our fucking fault that the studio is losing two million dollars <laughs> over here. Why are we suffering? Yeah. At the end of the second season, I remember feeling like Maury was getting very frustrated. Gene would allow things to come into the show that that were against his own concept and I would go ballistic. Maury had kind of gotten the show back to where it had fallen apart because of the writer's strike. He says, this episode is good, I wanna do this episode. Say, this episode is crap. When I have to fight Roddenberry about maintaining the integrity of his concept, I know I've lost the fight. He didn't seem to want to be there anymore. I think he was tired. I think he was tired of fighting whoever he was fighting. And egos kicked in in the second year, big time. Mine as much or maybe more than anybody's. I get a call from the set. Patrick Stewart won't read this line. There was an argument, and it went on a little bit too long. Patrick got a little angry. So now it's this. It's the producer and the actor. And he sort of said, if you guys don't get out of here, I'm getting out of here. I say to Berman, Fire them all. I'll build the second season on the absolute tragedy that the Enterprise exploded by unknown cause and lost everybody. And now we must find the new Enterprise crew. Systems are offline. I, I, I'd watch that. Well, this is the interesting thing. That would have been about the last moment that he could have gotten away with it. Right. Because <laughs> after that, then they were the show became so beloved, right? Third, what, third season. Third season. So <laughs> if he wanted to kill all of them and could bring in a bunch of other people, I don't know if the show would have lasted. But ...by the studio that Good Morning America would be coming into town. They were going to film on the set of Cheers. And they were going to film on the set of Star Trek. I said, no, screw you. We are working 12, 14, 16 hours a day to persuade people that we're living in the 24th century and we're out in space. Basically, they said, hey, there's nothing to be done. You're just an actor here, you know. I said, okay, can we lay down some ground rules about this? Taking this stuff very, very seriously for the sake of our fans. No gags, no jokes. No Klingon jokes. No fooling around. And they said, Especially oh, no, 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 absolutely jokes. not. There's no, going to be nothing like that. 
And so I walk onto our sets. The show is going out live just in time to hear them say, and now we're going over to uh, today's weather forecast and over to our weatherman. And he's wearing my uniform. <laughs> he's wearing the captain's uniform. I won't repeat what I said, but I walked off the set. We're live, we're live. You've been announced, you're coming on your live. And I said, I'm, I'm out of here. He repeated what he said. He said he wasn't going to. Uh, what a weird, what a weird story. What a like. I think in that moment, I think Picard's Picard, Patrick Stewart's a little too precious about it. It's a. I don't, it's. I guess it fits the. It fits the uh, the um, portrayal of him by uh, by the other the other actors. Yeah. Um, and particularly um, Riker. <laughs> Um, that everybody else was dancing and having a good time and he was very serious but the fact that it really seems like the thing he's sticking on is he's wearing my rank a captain should not be doing the weather it's unbelievable (laughs) i love it do you did you count the pips (laughs) four there are four pips Um, but then there, then there's a dispute about whether it was like Pike also says that yeah. he like tore him a new one and 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 made him wait. And by the way, the uh, the, um, the cafeteria they're talking about sounds great, right? That was the cafeteria that I would uh, hang out in when I had a show because I was on the Paramount lot. Um, you uh, would you sit at a specific table? Did you have an Andy Secunda table? I was not. I should show you how high up on the food chain that they were. I was nowhere near the executive area or the lofty area. I was always at a normal table, but it was in the nice the nice cafeteria, not the not the crappy cafeteria next door. So I had reached that far into the stars, guys. This thing was when I took over Roddenberry's idea. That was the first best thing that happened. The second best thing that happened was when they didn't pick me up for the third year. This guy sounds like a tool. When I left I the say. Paramount, uh-huh. I was laughing. I said, this is insanity. I have just left the cuckoo house. Just go right down to Paramount. You'll find the, the great bird of the universe. Only nobody knew he was a cuckoo bird. Oh gosh, it's really—he's stunning. Reese Hurley is amazing. Uh, Mike Pillar, late great Michael Pillar, coming on in season three, really riding the ship. And I, and I, you know, I don't want to talk too much about this last portion of the show of the of the doc because we're existing in a world where we're only in to season two. Yeah, you know, and all the season three stuff is very interesting, but. Uh, I can't. I cannot recommend this documentary enough for listeners of this podcast and people who uh, just are curious about the inner workings of a of a broken television show. One thing that is really fascinating, and I think even bears out on on shows I've been on, is uh, you, there's there's a lot of conflict in the stories about who had power at what time about why people were brought in about who made decisions at mm. certain points yeah there's a general perspective on Roddenberry having failing health and uh, his ego getting away from him and stuff like that but like I would really love to know the details of like where Berman was at certain points in reference to Hurley and when Pillar came on what was the 
yeah. it just uh it's a lot of really interesting workings and like and was it just that there were so many super talented minds that because i think this happens on our current show that there's a feeling of oh these people are doing a lot and then these people are doing less but there's there can be a, a great idea that comes out of nowhere like and from you know from someone who doesn't even isn't one of the main forces on the show totally so it's interesting so that's uh that's chaos and creation a uh, chaos and creation that's chaos on the bridge oh there was one more thing that i was hoping to to play that was q related oh um oh was, oh the god stuff the god stuff which i i don't think that's fair for you Oh, right I should know. Oh, that okay. stuff, that all that sort of stuff happens later. All right. Well, then we won't. There are episodes that even touch on that kind of thing. Okay. Very so, good. So, um, I will, however, yes. play the trailer for The Child, okay. season two, episode one of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Very Here good. is the sixty-second trailer. Okay. Uh, Coming this November, an all-new season of high adventure with Star Trek, The Next Generation. Captain Picard and the crew of the USS Enterprise, Riker, Jordy, Data, Data. Wesley, Worf, <laughs> and Doesn't Floyd. watch the show, clearly. <laughs> Ready to take on any challenge and to boldly go where none have gone before. This year, two new members join the crew in their ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds and examine new life and new civilizations. Diana Muldor is the ship's new medical doctor, and Whoopi Goldberg beams aboard oh. as an alien humanoid in the new Alien Humanoid launch. in the new Don't Ten Forward Lounge. All new exciting episodes of Star Trek: The Next Generation. The legend lives on. That was, in fairness, that was the season two specific trailer. Here is the trailer for The Child. Okay. Data. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. Counselor Troy will have her baby in about 36 hours. News of an alien pregnancy alarms the crew. Something which I can only describe as a presence entered my body. With this mysterious Uh entity pose of deadly threats. Destroy it now. In the Diana Muldor, Whoopi Goldberg, join the crew of Star Trek, the next generation. I gotta say, this really sounds like a writer's strike episode, <laughs> even from that trailer. She's <laughs> <laughs> gonna have the baby in 36 hours. Baby crying. Uh, I don't know, guys. Just make her pregnant. Whatever. Oh, Jesus. How about Rosemary's Baby? <laughs> I just saw Rosemary's Baby. I love it. <laughs> we are in for some treats, guys. I'm excited because this just brings us one step closer to the third season. Now it's when the, the third show season. gets great. Well, uh, at least we have the beard now, guys. The beard is, beard is, joined is upon us. us. The, uh, what else is here? Uh, Worf having the correct color uniform on. Is Guinan right from the top? Jordy being the chief engineer. Oh, right from right from the first episode. Oh, right from the get. This is exciting, guys. We're, we're There's a lot, of, a lot of good changes. A lot happening. of action happening here. A lot of uh, technology we're going to get to know and love. And uh, really, I wonder what episode Hurley checked out. <laughs> uh, let me play this, and uh, we'll see what your reaction is to it. Sure. 
What do you think? The NBC of the first... <laughs> is this a, specifically the first two seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation? Well, I guess it's the first season, right? Oh, no, this wouldn't be the whole first season. I'm just saying, what do you think for this documentary? Thinking of chaos on the bridge. <laughs> yes. Who is the most valuable player? It would be the actor, not who the is character. Most, who is the most responsible for getting us at least to where we were? Oh, man, that's tough. It is tough. That is tough. I do love Tracy Torme from what I've seen. It's kind of hard to tell. Yes, but he seems to have been shot down so many times he couldn't be the most valuable I mean, crew Rick, member. Rick Berman, perhaps? I mean, for all of my complaining about the uh, the budget thing, that can in indicates conscience. he's... Can't good conscience. Okay, fair enough. Rick okay. Um, huh. I don't know. Is it Leonard Mazelich? We don't know what he did behind the scenes. Is I'm, it, I'm not giving it to Hurley. I'll tell you that much. Is it uh, John Pike? Oh gosh, the, net, the network president. Network president. Oh, John I know Pike. who it is. It's um, Lucy uh, Salhani. Oh, I like that answer. First run. I like that answer a lot. Lucy Salhani. She saved her from being 13 and done on Fox. That's right. And it became something that ran for seven wonderful seasons. Lucy Salhani, wherever you are. Probably in Malibu. Thank you. Um, and uh, well, also, I think she might be in Chicago. I think she started some kind of investment production company deal. Oh, good for you. Um, and I'll say uh, my MVC for this podcast is Matt Myra. Oh, Andy, right back at you. Who led me through the first season. And the handily. The second most valuable crew member is Omar. That's right, Omar. He's a lying, now stretched out in the sun. Catching, up, catching some rays. <laughs> Good boy. All right. Well, Andy, I'll see you next week, buddy. I I, got to run. You left us here alone, Omar. Omar, I got it. So long. Disengage. I just beamed Omar off. (laughs) Omar. Oh, no. Where did you beam him? He can't survive in space. I didn't even even give him a little space outfit. (laughs) If you want to draw Omar in a little space outfit, please do. And tweet it at uh, TrekTNC. At TrekTNC. I'll I'll tweet on my handle, at Secunda, a picture of Omar. (laughs) If you would like to put Omar in a little tiny space suit. (laughs) That would be delightful. All right. Now we're all beaming out. Come on, let's go get Omar. All right. Disengage.